you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hey there, me again Gabby Dunn Host of Bad With Money. You should know that by now. You've clicked on the show. I'm here today to confirm that everything really is a little sick. This week's edition, healthcare. I've had patients who were literally being wheeled in for emergency appendectomies who, en route to the OR, someone, you know, a billing person would come up to their bedside and say, oh, can you give us a credit card? Literally, this happened to one patient. And the patient yep, said, yep. Um, uh, I'm in a gown. I don't have on any clothes. I don't have my wallet. And and the billing person said, oh, he, I have a cell phone. Can you call someone who can give us a credit card? That's a real life story that one of my guests for this episode, Elizabeth Rosenthal, told me. You'll hear more from her in a bit. And I think it sets up the world we're living in right now. Okay, I know that this isn't news. Medical expenses are now the largest single cause of bankruptcy nationwide. The Affordable Care Act just keeps getting chipped away, though it wasn't perfect to begin with. And in the U.S., we're paying more for medical care than any other industrialized nation. And we aren't getting better results. There's this news story from February of this year, and it really stuck with me. Donald Savistano lived upstate, but he grew up on Long Island. Earlier this month, he collected his New York lottery check after winning the Merry Millionaire ticket. Before Donald won the ticket, he had been an independent contractor, so he didn't have health insurance, and he hadn't been feeling great. But he couldn't afford to see a doctor to find out what might be wrong. When he won that $1 million from the lottery, he finally went to see a doctor who told him he had advanced stage brain and lung cancer, and he died weeks later. Awake tonight for the man who died from cancer just 23 days after winning a $1 million lottery. This is what we're dealing with in today's healthcare system. Healthcare has gotten so expensive and inaccessible that people are turning to unconventional methods to pay for it, like waiting until they get their tax refund, or even going on Guy Fieri's cooking competition TV show for real to win money to pay for medical costs. When we need Guy Fieri to help people pay for their healthcare, what is happening? All of this is going on in a weird economic vacuum where costs go up despite the fact that technology is old. To make it all worse, As with most things on this show, the system is set up to confuse and trick us into paying even more than we need to. This stuff is infuriating, and we're going to hear more about it after the break. Well, we're back. We're talking to Elizabeth Rosenthal, former physician, current editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, and author of the book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Now, even those of us who have good health insurance are vulnerable to a really disjointed system that's unaffordable for just way too many people. So, um, you know, hence my Pain Till It Hurts series at The New York Times and now the book, Mm -hmm. An American Sickness. I wanted to understand how we got to this crazy, unaffordable disjointed healthcare system that literally doesn't serve anyone well anymore and that nobody likes. That's, And I, I would say that about both patients and physicians. Physicians are fed up too. So if a healthcare system isn't serving 
either patients or physicians or health, most importantly. It's, <laughs> you know, it really needs change. Yeah. So some of your, your headlines have been diabetes shouldn't bankrupt you. Also, you mentioned your series paying till it hurts. How did we get here? Like, what are the economic rules of the dysfunctional medical market? Well, after I finished writing the book, I decided to pull together 10 rules of the dysfunctional medical market because, you know, everyone says... Mm -hmm. I set you up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, everyone says we have market-based health care. And I was thinking, wow, if this was a market, what would the rules of this market be if this is a market? And they're, they're all kind of crazy, but they're all real. And they're all things we see play out in our medical care. For example... You know, the the kind of overriding rule is the price will rise to whatever the market will bear. And because there Mm. is no real market, it means, for example, another rule that the more competitors in a market for a particular drug or procedure, that doesn't bring the prices down. It often means the prices can go up. It also, uh, another rule that I love that many in the profession find objectionable, which it is medically, is a lifetime of treatment is better than a cure. From a financial standpoint, that's just true. You know, from a medical standpoint, it's a nightmare. But if you look at something like type 1 diabetes, which is a serious lifelong disease, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. quite controllable now with pumps and insulins, all of which have gone up in price over time. If someone came tomorrow and said, "I I have a cure for this, which someone in the book proposes. Someone in the book is a researcher at Mm. Harvard who's doing studies on a cure for type 1 diabetes, right? It's very promising. It's very early. She doesn't know if it will work. Her name is Denise Faustman, Dr. Denise Faustman. But when she went to get funding for trials of that treatment, you know, she went to the normal funders of diabetes research who are often drug companies or foundations that are involved in diabetes work. And and they said to her, you know, really interesting idea. But if your idea works, it ruins a $14 billion market. Right. And there's right. the problem. I think about that all the time. I mean, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but I'm always like, they don't want to find a cure. <laughs> like, I think that all the time. Well, and I don't think that's exactly what I don't think anyone thinks that everyone thinks they're doing good. But the problem is, you, you know, financial incentives drive our healthcare system. We've decided to allow that. We've hoped that it will produce better health care. And the problem is that what are what are the end posts of of finance? Their return on investment, their profit, their you know how can we expand our business? What are the end posts of of medicine? They should be healing, treating, caring, and those are very different incentives, and they lead to very different places. So I think that's really how we got to this terrible place that we let the business of healthcare be on the front burner and the caring of healthcare be on the back burner. And I'm not saying that there's no role for business. I mean, you know, medicine has always been a business. You can't go under, of course, because then you can't keep treating patients. But I'm just saying that the caring needs to be on the front burner and the finance needs to be on the back. So I think we've got it all in reverse right now. I don't think what you're saying should be controversial at all. But I do have that thing of like, well, of course, the drug companies are money focused. Like I it's just I mean, you were like, well, I don't think anybody doesn't want a cure. And I'm like, no, no, that's they're just evil. I think <laughs> like, I think they do not want a cure. Well, I think, you know, what drives 
what drives them? These, these are not... Um, they're for-profit companies, they're human beings. right? Well, they're, yes, but they are—they are first and foremost a for-profit company that uh, yeah. is answerable to its shareholders. I mean, we saw this week uh, that the CEO of Pfizer is getting a huge bonus. I think something like twenty-five million dollars a year, right? to stay on past the age of 65. I mean, what is his compensation tied to? It's not tied to, you know, curing a lot of people. It's tied to how much money is Pfizer making this year? What's its return on investment? Are shareholders happy? Likewise, Mm -hmm. many hospital CEOs, you know, their compensation is not tied to, do we have low infection rates? It's tied to, How's our performance and income? So everything is tied to to finance and to income, and we trust that that will lead to better care. And, of course, it hasn't. I I mean, I think the results are Mm -hmm. out there. This is not my opinion. When you look at surveys of U.S. health outcomes versus other countries, you know, we're at the bottom of the list in things like maternal mortality, in many Mm -hmm. types of cancer care. You know, we are paying two to three times more as everyone else in the developed world, and we're getting worse results. So, you know, those are just the facts. That's not opinion. You mentioned earlier doctors don't don't like the healthcare system. Why well, I just was curious why that was. Well, I think it's because, you know, most people who go to medical school and I include myself in that, you know, go go into medicine because they want to help people. I mean, that's why you choose mm-hmm. medicine presumably over banking or law or something else where you could, you know, you know you'll have a a decent income. They want to help people and what we've seen over time is of course when business takes the front seat, their practice is more and more dictated by, you know, consultants, accountants, the business people who run the C-suite of their hospital saying, you know, you can only spend seven minutes with a patient. You have to order the MRIs from our hospital where they're perhaps 10 times more expensive than they might be at a, a mm-hmm. an independent center down the street. There's more and more paperwork. What you hear over and over again, and there are some kind of harrowing stories in the book from physicians who are given courses by their hospitals on how to bill. You know, how can you make this visit into Ooh. the biggest moneymaker? So things like, hey, if you just listen to the lungs, you know, then you can code it as a level four visit rather than a level three visit. And that means an extra 75 bucks each time. Well, as a physician, they're saying, well, yeah, sure, but I don't need to listen to this person's lungs. It's not part of their problem. So I think there's this level of frustration that the care is being driven by the business. There's also a level of anger that, hey, you know, the CEO and the accountants and the consultants are making millions of dollars, and here I am toiling away for a mere, you know, 300,000. There's a lot of, like, why are they getting all the money? So there, I think there's that, too. Mm-hmm. 
And and most people who went into medicine, I think, liked being independent, trying to make decisions that they thought were best for their patients. And they're not able to do that anymore. You know, they're second-guessed left, right, and center by people whose concern is more financial than medical. So, you know, they're answering not just to their hospital C-suite, but to the insurers and to the employers and to the billing consultants. And they're not able to deliver the kind of care they feel good about. They're not able to spend time with their patients. I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of physicians, one of the rewarding things was getting to know patients, having time to talk to them about their health. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen very We all know that doesn't happen very much anymore. You know, patient, uh, the, your physicians in the computer filling out forms and filling out billing schedules. You know, it's very frustrating for physicians not to be able to practice the kind of medicine they went into the profession to practice. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't physicians who are, who've decided, well, if I'm not going to have that kind of satisfaction of patient interaction, I might as well just make money, <laughs> you know. So there are physicians yeah. who've really gone whole hog with the business of medicine, who've set up ancillary services, which they bill a lot for, who've, you know, really embraced the business side. And in some ways, to me, sadly, turn their back on the caring and the healing side. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to be in a position in that position and not turn a little bit e- evil. I don't know. It's <laughs> simplistic. But how does um how does insurance like factor in? Like is 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 it all just kind of set up to to fail in the same way? Well, I think we all like to think, or many patients like to think, well, the insurer's in my corner, right? You know, they're going to fight for a good mm. deal for me. And I think that's that's an incredibly flawed and false narrative. You know, insurers are basically pass-throughs. They collect premiums and they pay out claims. And as one insurance broker said to me in the book, you know, they're too big to care about you. They just don't, as long as they can keep raising yeah. premiums and raising our deductibles and raising copays, they really don't care if if the prices are going up and up and up. And they really don't care that your deductible is now $5,000, so you're feeling it. Again, for-profit companies, it's not their issue. As long as they can keep passing on the extra costs to you, the patient, mm-hmm. they're okay. And that's why I, I, I think we're, we're all getting upset about this at this point in time, because with these high deductible plans, with the high co-pays, uh, and with the high high prices, we, the patients, are left holding the bag. You know, the insurers say, uh, mm-hmm. we're not going to pay this, and the providers say, we demand this much money. And so who ends up getting these crazy bills for, you know, what your insurer didn't cover? It's you and me. And they're, they're getting bigger and bigger. So I think that's a, a, a huge problem. And why I do feel like this country is at a tipping point now because 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you know, if prices were really insane, your employer, if you were lucky enough to have employer-based insurance, paid your premiums, the insurer paid what it paid, and you were kind of mm-hmm. facing low co-pays and no deductible. That's all changed. So now we're really feeling these crazy prices and it's why I hope in writing about it and talking about it, I can encourage people to stand up and say, you know, uh-uh, we're not getting good value here. I'm not going to take this anymore. I mean, we don't view healthcare as a right. 
in this country? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit. Is that like hugely different from other countries? Is that like where we're just like so behind in terms of developed countries? Well, I think a lot of other countries do say health care is a, is a right. right. For me personally, I feel like the issue of saying is it a right is is kind of the wrong narrative. It it's not so much that it's a right is as that it is something that everyone needs. You can't live without it literally. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, is air a right? Is water a right? Health care you will need when you're 9 months pregnant. You got to deliver the baby. If you get cancer or if you're having crushing chest pain, you need treatment for a heart attack. I don't think our country is so callous that we would say, you know, sorry, if you can't pay, you can't have that baby delivered. Or if you can't pay, we're just going to let you die of your heart attack. (laughs) They would. They do that all the time. They do that all the time. Well, they would do that. In theory, they would. But when the mother turns up in the emergency room or the guy with chest pain turns up in the emergency room, we have laws saying that they have to be treated. So, you know, inherently, we are saying... People die in emergency rooms all the time. they do. They do. I mean, we we produce substandard care, but we are not, you know, our choice of saying, is it a right or are we going to just say, no, it's not a right. We're going to let people die. I don't think any of us have have arrived at a point where we're willing to say we are going to consciously say it's better to die than to deliver your baby if you don't have insurance. It's better to die than to get your bypass mm-hmm. surgery if you're having an active heart attack. Not consciously. Right. Well, and this is yeah. the kind of conscious decision that societies, I think, should have to make. And I think also in in talking about this in our country, we have to understand the implications of the kind of system we've developed that you know, if in those extreme examples, we are not willing to let people not have their baby or just die, we have to understand that those things are playing out on patients all over the country by our lack of deciding that this is an important issue. And I think, you know, in fairness, one thing the Affordable Care Act did, which was really important, I think it did several really important things. The first one is to say, it doesn't matter if you have a pre-existing condition. You deserve to be treated and to have insurance. The second thing is, I think, to change our national dialogue to a point where now people do think health care is something that our country should be providing to everyone. I mean, when you saw those town halls this last year, people were standing up for health care. They were angry about health care. So despite all the rhetoric about, you know, oh, we've got to repeal the and replace the Affordable Care Act, the Affordable Care Act still stands um, because it was pretty popular in the end and because it changed our national thinking to saying that, yeah, we have to do this for American citizens. So Elizabeth mentioned how some cities and counties are sidestepping these FDA rules. It's happening in six states, and they are actually importing drugs from Canada and other English-speaking countries like New Zealand, where prescription meds are up to 80% cheaper. Flagler County in Florida is expecting to save about $200,000, and Schenectady County in New York says they'll save 20%. One specific example of savings is that one of these Canadian suppliers sells a three-month supply of Xeralto, a blood thinner that you've definitely seen commercials for on TV. In the U.S., it costs $485 a month. 
From England, the monthly cost is just $89. People, these are the same drugs. The same drugs. Not just that really cool Chance the Rapper song, but they are the same drugs. He has a song called Same Drugs. Has anyone else scrolled through Facebook recently without seeing a link to a crowdfunding site? And has that crowdfunding campaign been for medical care? I bet it has. What used to be something that helped makers fund their passion projects has now become another way to raise money to pay for healthcare. And with just a quick scroll through these crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe or YouCaring, I came across these campaigns. There's a five-year-old girl who's undergoing treatment for a rare form of childhood leukemia, but insurance doesn't cover all of the medical expenses. And a woman who has lung cancer and needs to purchase a portable oxygen machine, which would enable her to travel outside the home. And then there's a family raising funds for their son who died suddenly, but left behind hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills. Crowdfunding has cropped up as a makeshift solution to this broken system. Not enough money or insurance to pay for a medical expense? Take to the internet. Sites like YouCaring and GoFundMe, which just joined forces, YouCaring is now part of GoFundMe, started with very different aims in mind. But in the past few years, they've become the go-to place for people with a healthcare need. So how does a company that started as a way to fundraise for mission trips feel about what they've become? We'll find out after the break. And we're back. I was so curious to talk to someone at one of these companies and hear their perspective. Here's my conversation with Molly Lee, the chief marketing officer at YouCaring. Before you could uh, go to a neighbor or to a family member in the same town and ask them for help if you were going through a hardship. Well, now your friends and your family and your neighbors are all over the world. So crowdfunding mm-hmm. allows you to rally support from all of them, no matter where they are in the world, to help you through a personal crisis. So I know you caring wasn't always uh, so healthcare based. So mm-hmm. what is the ratio now of healthcare funding projects to other projects? Is that the most popular genre? Yeah. So medical and healthcare is the number one cause category on our site, and it's also the fastest growing. And we attribute the growth to the need in the U.S. for additional support to fund people's medical needs because, for instance, uh, there's not enough government support. And then a lot of times people don't take into account the fact that there's more costs beyond just, for instance, the doctor bills. It's um, missed work. It's new medical treatments or procedures, very expensive medications. And sometimes people need to travel to special treatment centers for rare diseases. Right. Yeah. And a lot of things aren't covered by insurance. Yeah. And and what's interesting is that we find that most of the people who, who do uh, turn to our site, they have existing insurance, but it's not enough to cover the high cost of deductibles. And when you're suddenly confronted by a cancer diagnosis, there's additional treatments that aren't covered. There's travel, there's missed work, there's child care for when mm-hmm. you need someone else to watch your child while you get treatment. Yeah. So how do like you see users succeeding? Like what's the best way to sort of meet your goal or what's the, you know, the trick of the trade or whatever? Got it. So in terms of best (laughs) practices, we found that people who upload at least uh, five photos and then are more descriptive about what they're going through and then exactly outlining how they'll be using the donations, 
we find that um, those fundraisers tend to raise more money and become more successful because they're very clear about the need and they're very clear about what the impact will be from the donation dollars. Um, we've also found that frequent updates, and we have tools on the page that allow the fundraiser to post uh, regular updates to the donor community and to prospective donors about how the donations are helping the person affected. And then also, it really helps to share the fundraiser on your social networks and to ask your network to share as well. Yeah, it just seems so crazy that it's like, okay, we have to have technology in or and we have to have access to it and also like inability with words and with mm-hmm. video and to be like, hey guys, I I deserve to live in a space where like the government doesn't cover that. Yeah. And um I think that it's really hard. It's really hard for a person, especially when they're going through a hardship, to ask for help. Right. And so what personal crowdfunding has allowed people to do is um, it's allowed people to ask their communities for help and in a way that they feel they can maintain their dignity. Mm-hmm. For instance, it's very difficult for someone to go directly to someone like a, a family member or a friend. Um, it may be insurmountable for them uh, from a pride uh, perspective, but then if they can put together this page and really be clear about their need and then share it to their, their friends and family that it is a gentler way to ask. Who do you see you caring not really working for? So we found that it's not a a uh, solution where you just put it up and then you don't pay attention to it. Right. So this would not be a solution for someone who is not willing to to engage with their donor community. Um, it's not a solution for for someone who who doesn't um, already have some existing community. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a community with money to help, you know? Yeah. And, but uh, actually I, I would, I would say that um, interestingly, most donations come from people who make a hundred thousand dollars or less. That makes total sense. Cause that's the thing of like, you know, the, the smaller donors who, who basically funded Obama, it's like the people who care, Mm-hmm. are are going to give a small amount of their money because they really care. And the people who could probably stand to put in $5,000 uh, don't care. <laughs> yeah. No, so that's what's incredible about personal crowdfunding is that it leverages the power of many to really mm-hmm. make an impact. Where do you see, so like, I, let's say in like 10, 20 years, I don't know, where do you see the, the future of crowdfunding going? So... When you look at a statistic that the Federal Reserve put out um, a couple of years ago, so they did a study and they found that 47% of Americans are $400 away from a financial crisis. So unless things change in a societal and governmental level, that more people will increasingly turn to their friends, family, and their communities. So 
we do see a growth and a continued growth in personal crowdfunding. It's just such a double-edged sword because it's so great that this exists, but it's so sad too. <laughs> yeah, but it is a, nice to find out. It is nice if you don't think, if you're kind of going through something alone and you don't think that anybody cares mm-hmm. and then to see that people do care. It's not just the financial support, right? For a lot of these people, um, it's they're going through very, very lonely hardships, um, Mm -hmm. whether it's um, a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a a spouse. And for them, um, a lot of user and and member feedback that we get is that through the course of that fundraiser, when it's up, all the comments of support, um, all the notes that they get, those are emotional lifelines for them as well. Um, and makes them feel less alone through a really, really difficult personal journey. So look, I'm sorry to say, crowdfunding isn't an effective Band-Aid. But what could be? What's interesting and dystopian is that this solution has actually introduced a lot of new problems and become a magnifying glass for some of our society's already held biases. For one... The well-off apparently earn more money on the crowdfunding site, youcaring.com, than people who aren't wealthy. Crowdfunding relies so much on personal networks, and it makes access to wealthy friends and family an important asset. Chronic conditions also get few results on crowdfunding sites because there isn't the opportunity to dramatically, quote-unquote, get better. Apparently, people prefer to donate to campaigns that feel like redemption stories rather than giving money to maintain a baseline of care. And socially taboo medical care for things like STDs or abortions are rarely successful. And until recently, GoFundMe banned abortion campaigns. I hate to say it, but this is only the start of it. We're going to hear more after the break. We're back and we're digging into the muck with Lauren Berliner. Lauren is an assistant professor at the University of Washington, Bothell, and she's been researching the rise of crowdfunding in healthcare with her colleague, Nora Kenworthy. On one hand, it's helping. But on another, it creates a whole new set of problems. Lauren and Nora studied these problems and came out with a research study called Producing a Worthy Illness, Personal Crowdfunding Amidst Financial Crisis. I'm coming from a a background both as a media studies scholar and as someone who works as a media practitioner as well, where I saw Kickstarter um, blow up and then sort of disappear in terms of the arts. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment in time where all my artist friends were going to Kickstarter to raise funds for films. And other kinds of media projects. And at first, those projects did so well because people got excited. Oh, wow, you have created a campaign that uh, sort of mimics the logics and tactics of traditional independent uh, cinema production. And of course, I'm going to contribute and make your film happen Mm -hmm. and make it into the credits and get your free t-shirt or whatever. And over time, people got fatigued by all the campaigns, the Kickstarter campaigns that uh, came across their feeds to the point that to the point that now I, I almost never see uh, requests for funds um, for films and other projects. It's become almost entirely medical campaigns. Like it almost seems uncouth at this point in our political history to be asking to fund a film because yeah. like like it's almost in bad form because there's so many medical GoFundMes now. And I remember like what you were saying where everyone was using these platforms for the arts and now it's like literally to survive. Yes. But the shocking reality is that even though 
we may want to prioritize those medical campaigns. There's a no way we can fund them all. Um, mm-hmm. Just logically, that's not going to work. Second of all, they Nora and I believe that these campaigns just reproduce existing inequalities. They rely on people to utilize a lot of skill sets, time, energy that most people don't necessarily have and access to, you know, high speed Internet and, and skills to learn how to make their campaigns go viral. They have to bring together their knowledge of how advertising works, maybe how social mm-hmm. media works, the logics of you know, even legacy media, like how do we get this onto Ellen so that it spreads even more? I have so much I could say about who she chooses as well, but I will remain quiet. Yeah, no, she's she keeps coming up in my work. It's been interesting. No, I love her. I have such mixed feelings, but I think she does tend towards oh, whatever. I'm just going to say it. I think she tends towards uh, white people with her promotions. I said it and I'm sorry, Ellen. Well, I mean, I actually think that brings up really interesting questions about, especially, uh, I think she makes some of the choices about what's going to circulate most and bring fans or potential donors to campaigns, um, much in the way that... Based on her audience. Or what she anticipates her audience to feel, which is kind of the ways in which we see a lot of the the crowdfunders themselves working, kind of trying to assume or imagine what an audience out there might feel or value. And that's where we see the reproduction of biases in our culture. So who seems to be most deserving? Who would we never expect this to happen to because they did everything right over time, right? And I put that in scare quotes, of course. And so, I mean, whether it's about race or about um, someone's class background or um, style or ability or shape, I mean, there's so many factors that shape the way that people interpret deservingness or worth. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's totally dystopian. We're rewarding people uh, who are willing to share intimate details of their lives and have the best hashtags and videos and memes. Mm-hmm. So can you explain a little bit about like what gets the attention, what gets the the also how does this competition make everything sadder? <laughs> That's a bigger question. Yeah. <laughs> so crowdfunding campaigns seem to do best when they can focus on a single solvable problem. So everyone likes the feeling that they're contributing to a campaign, which will result in a successful outcome. But, um, you know, like funding a rare but promising cancer treatment or operating on a child with a congenital disease. Um, It's also about telling a compelling and upbeat, promising story and being able to quickly grasp that story too, right, which requires Mm -hmm. social media skills and various literacies, like knowing how to create compelling photographs and video content, um, but also translating complex medical information for a general audience, which is really hard. We're also curious about what's not being represented in these campaigns. What kind of stigmatizing conditions are people potentially not bringing to the fore because they are at risk if they do circulate their narrative. So to what extent does crowdfunding foreground particular kinds of illnesses or needs that are considered worthy? Yeah, well, of course, it's like, you know, I'm sure there's a racial component where Mm -hmm. white people do better. I'm sure there's a component where if it's HIV or something Mm -hmm. considered like, quote unquote, you did this to yourself, which like Mm -hmm. is a super problematic viewpoint. I've heard other people say that if it's something that you can't easily explain or if it's a chronic illness that isn't, Mm -hmm. as you said, solvable, then people don't donate. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like so, oh boy, it's just a lot. 
And do you have any idea what the racial breakdown is? That's something we really want to look into further. And that's where Mm -hmm. we're going next in our research is to think about racial breakdowns, also age. We don't see many elderly people campaigning for themselves, which is something we know that they're elderly people in need. And we're also interested in other kinds of campaigns that may be funded in different ways amongst people at the margins. So how are people of color, how are queer trans people funding the kinds of needs and campaigns that may not necessarily circulate widely on GoFundMe? And that's something else we're we're, going to look into soon. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, speaking for the queer community in particular, Mm -hmm. I know like transition surgeries are probably not super popular in the mainstream in terms of medical crowdfunding, but we tend to like take care of our own in the sense that mm-hmm. like queer people will rally behind a trans person that they know and and mm-hmm. donate to their, you know, hormones or, or medical treatment. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm actually part of the queer community as well. And I've seen. Oh, hey, I've never seen yeah. you at the meetings. <laughs> we just know. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> I, I've seen exactly what you're talking about. And actually, when I was just looking around on GoFundMe the other day, I saw they now actually have a gender confirmation surgery section under medical. Hey, nice. I mean, what what are the holes in the in the social safety net? Is it just like we need universal health care? That's the problem. Or like, is it just we're failing specific groups? I think that it's all of the above. And mm-hmm. at the very least, you know, it's healthcare. We don't have appropriate healthcare, mm-hmm. and we also have. It seems internalized that one needs to be deserving along a number of identity lines in order to receive quality healthcare. Of course, I mean it's this idea that of a mob deciding who lives and who dies. Like who, but that's not how healthcare should work. It should just be for you as a human being. Exactly, and the the paradox that we're seeing here is that the more complex someone's medical needs are or the more trouble they are having to meet their basic Mm -hmm. needs like food, housing. Right. Which kind of goes to the wayside when you're sick. Absolutely. And and if you're already poor or even if you're, you know, struggling at a low wage job, you know, that it, it becomes even harder to articulate those needs and in a way that that doesn't feel shameful in a society that has a really hard time talking about financial need. So is crowdfunding, like, is it good? Is it a band-aid to the problem? Does it de-incentivize actual policy change, both for like people and for in the mind of politicians? Do they get to go, well, you know, they'll just like crowdfund it? So I think there are a lot of things about crowdfunding that in our study we felt really positive about the kinds of care and emotional support people are giving each other through comments, um, through responses to updates. I think a lot of crowdfunders will say that that the experience of crowdfunding, even if they don't meet their financial goals, can be a sort of positive one because they have an opportunity to go public with what they're going through and get um, support and affirmation that may appear offline, um, not through financial donations, but through other forms of support. So I think that that actually is positive direction. Um, Do politicians use it as an excuse? At this point in time, we might say that politicians will do anything to get out of health care provisions. (laughs) But I guess my bigger concern or our bigger concern is not so much what, you know, politicians think as much as what we as people in our society Mm -hmm. think is normal 
versus what is possible. Right. So if crowdfunding continues to become the norm in terms of how we seek additional funds to to meet our needs, does that possibly squelch our our anger to some extent? If that hug from our friends that we might receive through sending out the campaign makes us feel better, does that conflict with our desire to fight the system? So, surprise, we've reached this point again, and we haven't solved the healthcare crisis. In fact, we kind of just problematized the one big solution. But that doesn't mean we're helpless. As of the fall of 2017, 32 states plus D.C. have expanded Medicaid to adults with incomes up to 138% of the federal poverty level. That means more access to federal health insurance for more people who need it. 138% of the federal poverty level includes single people making about $12,000 a year, and slightly more than that in Alaska or Hawaii. What's your state doing to expand health coverage to its residents? If the Trump administration is going to keep trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, it might become even more important what your state offers. Also, see if your state has counties, cities, or school districts that do that awesome thing where they buy Canadian drugs. I can't believe I just said buy Canadian drugs. It would be hard to imagine that healthcare is going to leave the national conversation, especially as elections grow closer. Fixing this seems like it should be a priority, so maybe we should make sure our elected officials agree with that. And if you're a person wishing you could do more for your friends who are trying to crowdfund their medical expenses, amplify their campaigns if you can. Are you great at videography? Maybe you could help them tell their story. Lauren Berliner also had this idea for crowdfunding companies to implement themselves. I would love it if, you know, there were going to be any changes. There would be uh, opportunities for other sites that um, help to coordinate different kinds of care to be synced up with the financial site so that, you know, if somebody cannot donate money, here's a link to how to bring them a meal or they need a ride someplace or um, they need a hug, you know. Uh, here's how, you know, here's the research on this particular medical condition. Um, here's where you can be active in these communities around this medical condition or these needs. Here are some resources. Um, I mean, if it could be more of a clearinghouse around need and care, um, that would be more compelling. Um, I don't see that happening. And I don't actually think that that's a solution either. Um, I think what we need is affordable health care for everyone. So we're not in this position in the first place. But just living within the current system, it's important to know who we can tell when something unjust happens. Here's Elizabeth Rosenthal again. All states have insurance commissioners. They have a lot of sway often over what hospitals and insurers can do. But they're very reactive. They don't act unless people tell them. So we need to be reporting to them. Um, we also need to be pressuring them in the sense of there's a, um, in some states, there are elected positions. Uh, California now has a very active race going for the insurance commissioner. Do most people know who's the insurance commissioner in their state? Not at all. But that insurance commissioner could say, for example, um, you know, that's a surprise bill. A patient shouldn't have to say that, pay that. Um, that insurance commissioner could say, 
hey, insurance plan, that network is inadequate, or hey, insurance plan, we're going to fine you because your directory is grossly inadequate. It lists providers who are not there, and it doesn't list, for example, an orthopedist or an OBGYN that's within a good distance of most of the patients you cover. So we, you know, again, these are positions that are reactive. Only if if patients slash voters start putting on the pressure. And before you get that absurd bill from the hospital, there are other steps Elizabeth recommends we take. When I go to my doctor now and he says, you know, I want to send off this blood test, I'll say, okay, um, fine, but I want it sent to this lab because I know this lab is uh, cheap and in my insurance network, so I won't be caught out. And I also know after writing this book that his computer is probably programmed to send it to a hospital lab, um, his hospital lab, where that same blood test, which would cost me $10 on the outside, could cost $700. So, you know, again, asking those questions, sending those signals, if we're put in the position right now of being healthcare consumers, which I don't think is fair, but we are in it, we should act like it. Finally, to quickly revisit that scene Elizabeth described at the beginning of the episode, here's something to think about before you're in that position. Of course, you know, when you're going into a hospital on a gurney for an emergency appendectomy, you're not in a great position to to, to do that kind of thing. Um, however, um, you can take some actions. So when you're given that big pile of papers saying, you know, you consent to pay for anything that your insurer doesn't cover. I always tell people to write in so long as it's in my insurance network, because why why should I be kind of hoodwinked by surprise bills? And people will say, you know, rightly, wow, this is a lot to think about when you're sick. You can't change the politics of the United States by yourself today. But there are a lot of things you can do individually that I think, A, will save you money, and B, perhaps more importantly, will send signals to your providers and the health system that, you know, we're just not going to take this anymore. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who think crowdfunding is best used for making potato salad. That's a meme. That's a joke. Google it. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell and Sam Dingman. And we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Thanks also to Cameron Drews. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. And our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I, as always, am Gabby Dunn, and I am so honored to say see you next week.